Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we gather this morning, we do so as your people. We do so as your people who have been forgiven and redeemed. We thank you uh, that it is good for us to meet together. We thank you that your presence is here with us this morning. We thank you that this gives us a space to gather with other believers away from the busyness and everything else of this week. We ask, Lord, that you would focus our hearts, that it would be your words and not mine that would be spoken to our hearts, that your word would speak to us this morning as we consider the Lamb of God. We thank you that you are here. We thank you that you speak to us through your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to be continuing our series in, in John chapter, what, well, in John, and we're still in John chapter 1, we're just about halfway through chapter 1, um, and I'm taking on a really our first encounter with people beyond our um, really heavy and big theology that we've just been through of the pre-incarnate Christ and the incarnate Christ, the word became flesh, the eternal light. And we come and we meet John the Baptist here. And of course, John the Baptist is not the writer of this book. That is John the Evangelist. So I'll try and be really clear when I say John, if I'm talking about the Evangelist or if we're talking about the, the Baptist. But we're going to come and, and we're going to listen to John as he testifies. Or we could say John confesses and he affirms. But he has really two encounters here. And his first encounter is with some religious leaders. And his second encounter is with Jesus. And we're just going to have a little look at the two of those. We're going to compare them. And we're just going to draw out especially what it is that John the Baptist says of Jesus. So if you have your scripture journals for writing, that's great. If you haven't seen them or don't know what they are, there's still a few at the back if you'd like to get one on your way out. But really, it just gives you space to write notes alongside the scripture as we go through John's gospel. So, so starting from verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor, prophet, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered him, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. 
I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The two encounters of John the Baptist. Who is John? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the primary message of John the Baptist. We read that in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2. And also he quotes from Isaiah 40, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He wore garments of camel hair and a leather belt. He ate locusts and he ate honey. And we know from the other gospels that he had remarkable parents in Zechariah and Elizabeth. We read of them, of course, in the Christmas story. They were elderly and childless. And the angel said this to Zechariah in Luke 1. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. For he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. When the angel came and spoke to Zechariah, he didn't believe. And his mouth was bound, he couldn't speak until he believed and he did believe. And we read when John was born in Luke chapter 1, verses 76 and 77. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This is John the Baptist. And he bursts onto the scene. He is this uh, supreme witness to the things of Jesus. He is the one that comes right before him. And the world was really in, in a huge amount of confusion in the day of John the Baptist. Because by this point, he'd been preaching for about a year. His ministry had just thrown things into confusion because people just didn't get who he was. A lot of people didn't understand what, what sort of end times are coming with what this man is saying. We know that many believed because many came and they heard him and they were baptized. People were hearing what he was saying. They were recognizing it and they were being baptized into the anticipation of the coming kingdom of heaven that was near. We're told in Matthew 3, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, 
confessing their sins. John the Baptist began to make some waves. As he was doing this, as he was teaching, as people were coming and being baptized, people were starting to pay attention. And it drew the attention of the Jewish council that we call the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And this was the assembly of elders, the council, that were appointed as kind of, I guess, the supreme authority um, of the Jewish people. They were like a tribunal that was headed up by the high priest. And John the Baptist was clearly big enough for them that they felt a need to send out a party to find out who this man is and what on earth he was up to. So this group of priests and Levites were sent from Jerusalem. I guess they're a little bit like private investigators. And they were sent. There's a mixture in here of of Sadducees and Pharisees. And of course, we learn a lot of the Pharisees because Jesus speaks about them frequently. But I guess it's helpful just at the beginning as we first encounter these words, just to clarify what some of these things mean. The priests predominantly made up of these two groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees were the more conservative in their interpretation of Scripture. So they were far more, they were about the book, and the book was what mattered. And if there wasn't a command in the book, they just weren't particularly bothered by it. The Sadducees were more upper class, they were more higher rank Priests, there was more of them. They were of better social standing. And they controlled this group of people, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And of course, then we have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees liked their scriptures, but on top of that, they also liked to make up their own stuff and stick that in as well. Jesus tells them in Mark chapter 7, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. So when we read of the Jews here, throughout the book, it means a number of different things. But here, it is talking about this centralized power. So this group of priests and Levites, goodness knows how many of them there are, come to John and basically say, who are you and what are you doing? And really what they're interested in is who is it that authorizes this baptism that John is conducting? Not because baptism was unknown to them. It was a common practice. Some Jews, if they converted to Judaism, would baptize themselves as a sign of their conversion. Some of the groups of monks would baptize themselves daily because it was a sign of the renewed commitment to God and to their community. But in both of those instances, baptism was done by the person. It was self-administered. And here we start to see John baptizing other people. Who are you? Are you the Christ, the Messiah? Are you the one that has been promised through all the scriptures? Are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? No, no, and no, think again. What we see here is John's humility because he was a prophet, because he spoke of the one who was to come. But we see John in all his humility that is unraveled a little bit more for us here. 
What he's saying is, I come to baptize with water, but the one that comes will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He has no authority as the Messiah. He has no authority from Elijah. He has no authority of being a prophet because his authority comes from the one who will come. John's very aware, verse 33, he's aware that it's, it's the one um, who sent, it was God that sent him to baptize. But he was so aware that whatever stature and status he had, because of that, it was utterly incomparable to the one who was still unrecognized among the people. So John, who are you? I am the voice in the wilderness, and I am not worthy to even untie the strap of the sandal on the one I come on behalf of. Here we see an extreme level of humility. Jesus is incomparably greater than John, and John knows it. John knows that he is a witness, he is a temporary witness that is here to point to Jesus, and he is preparing the way. John Calvin said the sum of it is that he wants to abase himself as much as he can, lest any degree of honor wrongly be given and should obscure the superiority of Christ. So when John is asked who he is, his real answer is, it's kind of irrelevant, it's all about Jesus. I don't really matter, but it's all about Jesus. Who is John? John is an obedient servant prophet, and he is carrying out his duties, which is preparing the way for Jesus. Now we come to a second point. John's second encounter, his affirmation, his encounter again with Jesus. This is likely the next day from uh, what has just happened. And by this point, we can see from the end of this passage, he's already baptized Jesus. Uh, we don't find that encounter written in John's gospel. Um, but a reminder from Mark 1, 10 and 11, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove and, came, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is what's going on in John's head at the minute, this incredible supernatural experience where he hears a voice from heaven and a dove descending having baptized Jesus. John knew who Jesus was and now he had seen it. John's doing what he's doing. That undoubtedly there would have been crowds with him. Crowd maybe a little bit like this. Lots of people from different walks of life. I'm sure some would have been baptized, some not. Some would have believed every word, some would have not. Some were curious, some probably thought he was crazy. I'm sure there was still probably a group of this religious leaders still gathered with him. This crowd will be a right mixed bag that is with John. And on this day, Jesus is walking towards him. I love how casual that is, that the Savior just dwelt and walked among his people. So what is John going to say to this group of people? Of anything that he could say to these people, some who believe, some who don't, what could he say? 
Then he says this, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist never appears to beat around the bush and he certainly doesn't here. We know there is nothing that on our own we can do with our sin. We know that we cannot get rid of it on our own. We dare not think for a minute that there is anything or anybody who has ever, will ever live that can take away the sins of the world. Because there was no other way that the sin would be taken than through the Lamb of God. And there was nobody else qualified to be that Lamb except the Son of God himself. Because the Lamb of God had to be God made flesh. It had to be God because nobody else was good enough. And you see now how John starts to flow from these first 19 verses to these first 28 verses. They're all pointing towards what is coming. What, what, what is the climax? What are we saying here? The word has become flesh and now we see why. Why did God forfeit the rights of heaven and still fully God, fully man come into the world? Well, it was to take away the sin of the world. John writes in his epistle, 1 John 3, and verse 5 and 6. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen or known him. Because here as John speaks, he is so steeped in, in Jewish history that this lamb that, that we'll explore a little bit is just so relevant and, and so full of uh, information and images for the people that will be listening. Only God could be that lamb because that lamb must be spotless. And it is there we first, we, we read of in Leviticus chapter 4, where we read of the sacrifice of the lamb from verse 32. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out uh, all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar and the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed and he shall be forgiven every serious old testament believer and christian knows that an animal cannot take away the sin of the world hebrews 10 4 tells you so for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins 
So what is it that's going on here in Leviticus as we're introduced to this, this symbolism and the sacrifice of the animals? Well, they're parables. They're pointers. They're foreshadows. They point to the one who will come. It points to the day when there will be a lamb that will make the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. And John knows it, and John knows it well. What about if we move to Isaiah chapter 53? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. This Old Testament imagery and these pictures that we find in Leviticus and in Isaiah, it's becoming a reality in front of the eyes of John. It is just bursting out in front of him. And what he's saying here is, he is here. This man that is walking towards us, this is him. This is, this is who you've been waiting for. This is the one who comes to take the sins of the world. It's all about this guy. Behold him, watch him, see him, observe him. You see, as Abraham took Isaac up the mountain in Genesis 22, Isaac asks him, we have fire and wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham replies, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. It only took 18 centuries and the best part of 50 generations. But he is here. Behold him. Behold the perfect one. Behold the sinless one. Behold the unblemished one. He is here to take away the sins of of the world. And in the future of the Lamb, in Revelation chapter 5, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. There is not one who is more powerful than that lamb. The, the wealth of heaven is something we cannot wrap our head around, but it belongs to him. All wisdom, there is nothing that he does not know. All strength, all honor, all glory, all praise surely sits on the shoulders of this, of this triumphant king, which he is, but also it sits on the lamb. I don't know if you know this painting, it's the, the Agnes Day by Zeburbanen. I think that's how you pronounce it, sorry if that's wrong, from the 17th century. I'm not really an arty guy, but I find this, this image really 
provocative, you see that the legs are bound. There is a halo around the head. John is telling us that Jesus would be a sacrifice for our sin and that God has provided the lamb for our deepest need. Here's what it means. Our message must be the sacrificial, de- the f- sacrificial death of Jesus. Our faith is a bloody faith. It is easy to want to move away from the blood and the significance of the blood and the atonement from our thinking. But it is the blood of Christ that cleanses us from our sin. And this reality must be primary in who we are. Yes, of course, Christ comes to give abundant life. Yes, of course, he he worked miracles and continues to work miracles to this day. But these are benefits of the gospel. These are not the gospel himself. Because the gospel that is centered solely and primarily on Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That message that John came with is the very foundation of our faith. And likewise, it must be the very foundation of the church. Everything else that we do, everything else that we think, everything else that we say falls under submission of the fact that he is the lamb, that he is the one who takes away our sins. Everything that we do as individuals and as a church must be centered around that that atonement of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because we have nothing else to offer. Because we, like John, are unworthy to untie Christ's shoelaces. Yet he is the one who elevates us and saves us from our sins. But also, this is the message that we have to offer. This is the message that we have to offer to the world. Is he your lamb? Do you believe that he died for you? Is your your sin and your shame and the weight of the burdens of this life, are they cast upon the shoulders of the spotless lamb? Because it is only there that your soul will find rest and restoration. We must keep the atonement, the sacrifice of Jesus before us. It must be the message that is on our lips. We want to be a people that are so captivated by him and what he has done at Calvary that everything else comes second to that. Because the message of the one who takes away the sin of the world must be our message and the message of the church and this church. Everything else falls under submission of that. Come and see. Come and behold. Wonder in it. Marvel in it. Be in awe of it. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would we have that passion that John the Baptist did? Would we have that passion that says, come on, come and behold him. Come and see him. 
Behold, this is him. You do not need to die in your sins because there is a lamb and he has taken away the sins of the world. Friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, if you don't know the one who takes away the sins of the world, if you are carrying the weight of your sins and your shame around with you, and you know that in your spirit that today there is something that you need to do in surrendering yourself, would you give yourself to Jesus? Would you give yourself to him? Because it is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the word become flesh who takes our sins so that they are yours no more. I love this quote just to finish. In Leviticus, we see the Lamb of God prophesied. In Isaiah, we see it personified in the Messiah. In John, we see him, Jesus, identified as the Lamb of God. And that passage in Revelation, we see him magnified for all of eternity. I think that's wonderful. Let's pray. Father, we cannot comprehend that you would love us so much that you would give your one and only son for us. That he, spotless and blameless, like a lamb, would give his life as a ransom for many to take away our sins. But that man that approached the crowds, as John the Baptist declared, is the same God today continues to lift our burdens and continues to transform lives. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen.